We as conservatives have a natural, healthy suspicion of bureaucracy, but we mostly focus our attention or our negative attention, our doubts and suspicions on domestic policy, you know, the EPA telling you what light bulb you can use and can't use, crazy stuff that you read about from the European Union, let's hope not coming soon to a country near you about, you know, the size and shape of vegetables, how you can grow them, right? Well, we, we on the right, we tend to not associate these doubts with the national security side of the bureaucracy. Uh, and sometimes we even lionize the national security bureaucracy. In a way, that's understandable, right? Many of us have served in the military. I didn't, I said us, but many of you have served in the military uh, or have worked in intelligence. And we think of these people as great patriots keeping us safe. And, and many thousands of them, in fact, are. Um, uh, and that, that, that's reasonable. And I think there's some of the our esteem for the national security bureaucracy for people of a certain age is also uh, a hangover in a way from the Reagan era when the military was down and out in the 70s and we got the military buildup of the 80s, you know, restored pride in the military, kind of exercised the ghost of Vietnam. The United States wins the Cold War, the late 80s, early 90s, gets into a conflict in the first Gulf War, uh, handles that conflict extremely well and quickly, uh, a real victory, and the people who lived through all of that tend to think these are good institutions. This is what government should be doing, not unlike these, these bad institutions uh, over here. And I think our esteem uh, even rose after 9-11. Now, we, we were here on the, on the anniversary of 9-11, two days ago, I think, that's right. Um, you have to think back for younger people. I teach undergraduate students. I'm starting now to get students who weren't even born when 9-11 happened. And this will happen more and more as you know, students get younger and I get older. Um, it's hard to remember now how insecure the nation felt then. We were all convinced that follow-on attack was coming somewhere and that it could be any day now and who knew, who knew what it would be on edge. We were all on edge and it, and it didn't happen. And we were grateful to the national security state for protecting us. And, and, and that gratitude is not entirely misplaced. Uh, whatever you think of events of those times, there are well-documented instances of the national security state discovering, intercepting, disrupting, preventing follow-on attacks from happening, and we do owe them our gratitude. Um, now, I'm, I'm the, the sort of the, the flattery part is over. Now I'm gonna tell you about the problems with these, these institutions, okay? Um, we've heard a lot of talk. These two terms have become uh, current recently. Um, Administrative state is one, and the deep state is another. Sometimes people use them interchangeably. I think they're different, and I think the ways in which they're slightly different matter for this purposes of this discussion. Um, the administrative state has its roots in, in Hegel, a German philosopher whom I, in order to haze them, I assigned to my students because I had to read him. Now I make them read him. He's very torturously painful to read, but the, the point here is it's adopted his ideas are adopted by the American progressives, the capital P progressives of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And the basic idea, if I'm gonna really simplify it, is that modern life has become so complex that ordinary politics, you know, voting, uh, legislative politics, these kinds of things, cannot manage anymore. So things have to be administered by educated experts who rule based on knowledge or science, essentially without input from the people, the common people. Um, in the United States, this is all instituted within the executive branch. 
Um, but this is not a problem that's unique to our country. Other countries have it too. Other countries in many ways have it worse. If you think the US civil service is powerful, take a look at what the, the power of the United Kingdom civil service. It's, it's much stronger even than ours, and ours is pretty strong. Or um, go to the continent of Europe and you have these incredibly strong bureaucracies and you have the super bureaucracy of the EU and Brussels to deal with. All right? So it could be worse. Um, the deep state, I think, is better understood by the DC, the swamp term, revolving door. We've all heard of the revolving door, right? You go in as an, under, or as an assistant secretary, you do your four years, your eight years, you come out, you get a lucrative job as a law partner or a lobbyist or something, then you go back as an undersecretary. So you're just constantly moving between lucrative, powerful positions in the private sector and not very lucrative, powerful positions in government. But in fact, the government positions are quite lucrative because that's what enables you to get the lucrative position in the power in the private sector. And there's another category of people who maybe only go into government once, but they end up having amazing amounts of influence. Think of Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger's last day as Secretary of State was January 20th, 1977. It's like he still is Secretary of State in many ways and has been ever since. He's got that much power and influence. Okay, and then I would add the third category, which is really my topic today, the national security state. This is where the deep state and the administrative state come together. These are formally their administrative state agencies, right? Every agency we're going to talk about or think about is housed formally within the executive branch. That means on paper their boss is the president, who should be able to tell them what to do and what not to do, but can't really. I'll get into that. Um, and they're run by revolving door types. Um, you know, it's certainly at the top, the people who end up being directors and deputy directors and so on are the types who then go out and get these very lucrative and, and powerful jobs. Um, all of these agencies, many were created, and the ones that weren't created were vastly strengthened by the post-World War II reforms, okay? You know, the National Security Act of 1947 is really key here. Um, this is where you get the Department of Defense is created out of the amalgamation of existing departments. The CIA is created sort of from nothing. And from that act, it's constantly that's it, it laid a foundation. It's constantly been built up ever since. You get agencies like the National Security Agency, other laws like the Goldwater-Nichols Act of 86. All of this, as I said, is nominally under presidential control. If you, you look at the flowchart, it seems like the president is their boss. In real life, the president has limited power to tell them what to do. In real life, they're run on a kind of consensus. It's hard to explain. It's hard to even to understand. But um, at the risk of, you know, getting some more booze, I, I'm going to just, I'm not going to quote, but I'm going to summarize a statement of, you know, the, the villain of the hour, Vladimir Putin. Said something, just because he's Vladimir Putin, doesn't mean he's wrong about everything. He once said, um, yeah, you know, the bureaucracy really runs the United States on the security side. And he said this to an interviewer. He said, I, I believe that Barack Obama came in, and he, he really did want to close the uh, military prison at Guantanamo Bay. Eight years later, it was still open. And he said, the bureaucracy just wouldn't let him. Putin's right. That is basically what happened. Now, we can debate whether that was the right thing, the wrong thing, but it, it is true. Obama wanted to do it, despite being elected and re-elected, being president for eight years, he couldn't do it. The bureaucracy wouldn't let him, and he couldn't find a way to make them obey his orders. Okay, I'm supposed to be a political scientist. Don't tell my bosses. Um, but I confess, I find this regime hard to understand. And I worked in it for six years, twice. Four years and then about two years the second time. Who's in charge? It's hard to say, right? Who's the sovereign? Who gets the final decision-making power? So I live in Northern, Fairfax County, Northern Virginia. 
almost everybody who lives in Northern Virginia, I exaggerate slightly, works in the, in the national security state in some way. It's just crawling with these people, right? And, and they all, you know, who, are they in charge? Some GS-15 driving a Toyota Camry to an $800,000 house in, you know, Oakton, right? A GS-15 is pretty high up on the civil service scale, but you're still talking about somebody who makes like 140 grand a year. Are, are they the sovereign? They got a lot of power. Or an SE, if anybody of you know these federal bureaucratic categories, SES-3. That's, that's the highest rank you can get in the federal civil service. Senior executive service rank three. At, at the highest pay scale of an SES-3, you make 187 grand. That's decent money. It's great money. You know, 90 grand is a coal miner in West Virginia. 187 is an SES-3 in, in, in McLean or whatever. Are they in charge? It's very hard to say. Or is it, you know, is it their nominal bosses? the undersecretaries, deputy secretaries, secretaries, directors, who kind of come and go. We all know stories of bureaucrats who get a new boss appointed by the president, and they don't ever say this, but what they're thinking is, yeah, I'm gonna be here forever. You're here for a couple of years. I don't like what you want me to do, or you, know, uh, or you want me to stop doing something that I think I need to do. I'm just gonna keep doing it and wait you out. And they tend to win. So it's hard to say who's really in charge, and it might not even matter because they all think the same way. So the Goldman partner with 100 million in the bank who comes in as an, an assistant secretary or a deputy secretary, and the SES2 over here may be vastly different in the amount of accumulated wealth going home in different cars to different neighborhoods, different homes, but they think the same way. It almost doesn't matter which one of them is in charge because you could shuffle the deck, take this guy and put him here and this guy and put him there, and you're gonna get the same outcome. Nobody disagrees, okay? This leads me to opine that the real doctrine is not any people, it's the sovereign. Or sorry, it's the real sovereign is the doctrine. I'm still working this out. I have friends of mine who say I'm wrong. We'll see, I, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I throw that out there as provisional. Okay, but think back to Trump's first impeachment. You remember he got impeached twice, right? The first one was in 2019. What was it about? Well, they never could explain. It was like, well, he tried to bribe the, it had something to do with Ukraine. What it was really about came through in the testimony of that army lieutenant colonel on the national security staff, where I serve, part of the problem, um, who said, he gave his testimony, and he was outraged that Trump violated the interagency consensus. That was his sin, right? The interagency is a holy word in the national security bureaucracy. It's where we all come together and we sit around at a big table and we hash out what we're gonna do and we make policy and everything turns out the same because everybody sitting around the table has the same opinion, okay? And, and it almost doesn't matter what the consensus, what that particular consensus was because there's no dissent in the national security bureaucracy and there's no real supervision from the political appointees who even if they wanted to provide supervision, and most of them don't, uh, the supervision would be immaterial because they all agree with the people under them anyway. Okay? So this is an old joke from the State Department that I like. It's a, it's a decent joke. that every, there's, a, there's an internal think tank in the State Department called policy planning. Right? Uh, famously headed up by you know, George Kennan, the guy who wrote the long telegram, the X article, father of containment, and so on. And the joke goes that every memo out of the policy planning department comes to the same conclusion. It says, well, you always have to, when you're giving senior leaders in the US government, it's, it's good form, these memos have a structure, no different than iambic pentameter, right? There's a form that you gotta follow. And you always have to end with recommendations. You gotta give options. But the options uh, are, are according to the old joke. First is, first strike, hit them with everything we have. Let's let every missile fly, right? 
the whole arsenal. The second is unilateral disarmament and surrender. And the third is continuation of the present policies. <laughs> Every paper that comes out of the national security state that goes to the president basically says that, right? Here are two completely unacceptable things, and then the third is the one that we want you to do. And that's the only one a sane person can possibly choose. Okay. In this case, though, in the Vindman case, the subject matter was important. It was about Ukraine, right? The interagency wanted the administration to take the side of Ukraine. This was three years ago. It was a long time ago. Now let's see where we are. But, and the president didn't want to do it. And they impeached him over it. And the interagency got its way. He ended up providing so-called lethal aid. They all, uh, nobody comes up with better euphemisms than the national security bureaucracy. It's great. If you take my national security class at Hillsdale College, I say one of the great benefits to you as young undergraduates who don't know anything about this is I'm going to teach you so much jargon that you can drop in Georgetown cocktail parties should you get invited to one. People are going to think you're totally legit. You just walked out of the White House Situation Room, right? I'm going to teach you the secret lingo. Um, there are a number, of, this is sort of the, the, the main point here, is there are dangers from this national security state. And I identify three, probably more, but three at a minimum. One is that by doing what it wants us to do, we end up squandering a lot of national resources foolishly. The second is, and this hasn't happened yet, but I'm worried about it, it may get us into a really, really bad, really dumb war where we really lose more than we lost, let's say, in the 9-11, the post-9-11 wars that, that, that were very harmful, I think, to us. And the third is that they're using the state against the American people domestically. I hope all of you listen to Julie Kelly. Um, she knows this in intimate detail better than I do, but, you know, we, we'll see this in a second. Okay, as to the first, squandering national resources. Well... They've already done it. I mean, we already have an example. We spent 20 years in the Middle East, essentially, and we have nothing to show for it. We lost trillions of dollars, something like 7,000 7, American lives. Nobody can count the number of lives lost from, uh, you know, Iraqi civilians, Afghan civilians, and so on. Um, the national security state uh, wanted this. Now, why? It, it, it's hard to say. And I, again, I spent a lot of time around them, with them, and now I teach them, and I still find them hard to understand. But they do, they will, when pressured on this, they will try to explain to you that this is all very important. They will give speeches about the so-called liberal international order or the rules-based international order. And the speeches aren't particularly profound or, convinc or convincing, but what they boil down to is a kind of definition of the entire world as a vital U.S. national interest. We have to be involved everywhere, and if we aren't, then the world will collapse and the United States will collapse with it. And so, you know, continuation of the present policies. There's no alternative. Um, I, some people, friends of mine, will say, yeah, they're lying. They don't believe that. It's all about the defense contractors or this or that. And I, you know, I don't know. I think I've, I've heard them give the speech so many times. I think they believe it. I think they really do believe that the United States is Atlas with the world on its shoulders, and if we shrug, everything crashes. Um, at, at the end of the day, I'm not, again, I'm not sure it matters whether they're being cynical or whether they're true believers because they'd pursue the same policy either way. And that's the, that's the real problem. So squandering resources, it also leads to a pretty dangerous overextension that we're feeling right now. I mean, right now in 2022, the, na the nation has pressing domestic problems that we're not doing anything about. And meanwhile, we're spending you know, gazillions, I mean, I don't know what we've committed to Ukraine so far. I probably should have done a little research and tried to tally up and give you a number. But it's many billions of dollars in aid and in so-called lethal aid. Lethal aid means we're giving them our weapons. So there are certain 
uh, military supplies, weapons, and things that the United States uses that we don't have any stocks of right now because we've given them all to Ukraine over the last couple of years. Well, that causes a problem. And, and we've got operatives, all, uh, military operatives all over the world. I, I, the last time I did do a tally of, of how many countries there are uniformed uh, uh, members of the American Armed Forces in, it was 40, 40. Could be higher than that today, could be lower. It's probably not much lower. And intel operatives are everywhere. So think about that for a second. Now, the risk of war, okay, this is my second danger. We get into a really big, bad war, worse than Afghanistan, worse than Iraq. We're playing a pretty dangerous game in Ukraine. You can hate Putin as much as you want, and yes, no sovereign country should invade another sovereign country. All of that is terrible, but think about what we're doing. From his perspective, we're just his enemy over something that he considers a vital organ, a vital national interest, and he's wondering, like, why do you guys care about Ukraine that much? I have the same question, why do we? Not because I dislike Ukrainians, I'm just wondering, like, where's the, where's the core US interest? Well, one of the things that we're doing, the intel state, you know, have you guys heard this stat? Um, more general officers, meaning, you know, people with stars on their epaulets, have died in this conflict than have died in, since World War II. Like, senior people, three-star, four-star generals are getting killed. Russians. Why? It seems to be because the American and allied intel states are giving very precise targeting information to the Ukrainians who are killing them. This probably makes Putin angry, I would think. And it might cause some significant, I mean, think about that. If, if our military went into some theater of operations and two, three, and four-star generals were getting offed by drones or whatever, and we figured that, remember how, how completely nuts DC and the media went with the fake story about Russian bounties for US soldiers in Afghanistan. It turns out to have been a total lie. Everybody went insane, right? Well, what if we knew for certain that because of Russia, our three, four-star general officers are getting killed in a theater? You think the American military intel state would take that line down? Well, so far there hasn't been much blowback on us, but the, the risk is high, I think. And, and again, what are we doing it for? I worry too about China. I made a little bit of a splash, I suppose, last year at this conference, simply by mentioning the fact that, look, if we got into a conflict with China over Taiwan, the Chinese can probably sink a United States aircraft carrier. And that's like 5,000 guys dead at one stroke in an hour or less. And that hasn't happened since 1942. What would it do to the nation were that to happen? And I was called an appeaser and other bad names. That's all right. You know, it's like I work for BlackRock. I can take it. Call me whatever you want. Um, <laughs> It, it, it worries me that we're playing these kind of dangerous game. We don't really know what we're getting into, and, and, and we may suffer a very hard fall. Um, the other thing, too, before I, I move on, I'm, I'm getting the hook here, but not quite yet. Um, the United States, since World War II, built up this system, um, a financial system, a, a sort of rules-based international order. I believe all of that, but it is now using it in a dangerous way, right? In other words, you hear often, like, why, why, how can the United States print all this money and not go broke? Well, because we, the dollar is the reserve currency. You hear this all the time. 
That's a huge advantage that we have. SWIFT and these other instruments that bind together the US financial system, everybody want, did want to be in them because they were efficient and they thought that we administered them fairly or at least impartially. Well, we're now using them to punish states whose behavior we don't like and we are pushing our, ad our adversaries have long wanted to break that system and make their own parallel system over which we have no access and influence, but they've found it difficult to do so. Now they're finding it easier to do so because our behavior is turning off not merely adversaries, but a lot of countries who are kind of neutral and would like to be in our system, but are afraid now. It's, it's, in a way, it's like, you know, you, let's say you, you bank at the first national bank, and 50 years, everything is going fine, and then your friend Joe has his account canceled because of a Facebook post, and then your friend Susan has her account canceled because, you know, she works for a gun company or something, and you start to realize, I can't trust this bank. I gotta, I gotta go somewhere else. That's what's happening around the world. We are tearing down this system that we built by using it in a haphazard way to alienate and punish other countries. Okay, the third danger is pretty obvious. That is, they're using this national security state against the American people domestically, okay? Obviously, you have the Russiagate scandal, right? They spy on the president, they frame him for colluding with Russia, it's all fake to try to get him impeached. Um, none of it worked. You now have people sitting in jail um, and pretrial detention for January 6th. We're, we're, we're getting close to the two-year mark, we're past the year-and-a-half mark, all because of a so-called threat to our democracy. All of, uh, most of these predicated on some law and or technology used by the national security state to find these people. Um, I want to say that after 9-11, you know, they passed the, the Patriot Act. There's also FISA, so a, a serious problem, which goes back to 1978, but its powers, this is, that's the foreign intelligence, how does that go, actually? Super, yeah, right. It's, a, it's basically like, well, we want to spy on you, but that's kind of illegal and unconstitutional, so we'll set up a special court and we go ask the judge if it's ju legit, and then we can spy on you, and then we won't be violating the Constitution. And the judge is supposed to give adult supervision and say no if it's unjustified. The problem is you go to a FISA court, you ask to spy on somebody, and they always say, yeah, sure, of course, why not? It's national security, right? Nobody ever gets turned down. Um, and I do want to say, because I'm here, there's probably some of you in the room, the right after 9-11, I, re I referenced the, you know, the post-9-11 moment when we were all really scared. The libertarian said, don't do this. They will, it will be used against you. It will be turned against you. It will be used domestically. This is a terrible power to give to the government. We shouldn't do it. And many conservatives said, no, 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 we need this. It's, 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 it's only going to be used against foreign enemies. You know, don't be soft. We've got to be tough against terror. Libertarians were completely correct, and we all owe them an apology. Anyway, I do. Okay. I don't have much time left. Uh, the, uh, the only reason I'm going to continue a bit is just to, because everybody wants to know, well, what do you do, right? You, you've diagnosed the problem, you have no solutions. It's true, I never have any solutions. If we were to do something, if we were to do something though, um, I, I would say a few things. We need more adult supervision of the national security state. There are too few political appointees over these agencies, and they don't have enough power. Uh, when I started in the Bush administration in 2001, the top six people at the CIA were presidentially appointed. That's too few, but today it's two. Two. 28,000 people in that agency. Only two of them are president. Everybody else is a bureaucrat who's loyal to the agency above all. Um, we got to just get rid of FISA. It needs to just go. Just abolish it. If you can't abolish it legislatively, then the next president, if there ever is a Republican president again, 
should sue, just challenge it in court and just say, oh yeah, I, even though this is an executive branch power, I don't want it. I'm going to try to shut it down. And that president should order, by executive order, which he would have the power to do, his agencies to never ever seek a FISA warrant again. You're just not allowed to go do it. You're not allowed to even ask. Even if I, if I can't get rid of this system, I'm going to bar you from using it. Um, something obviously has to be done about the FBI. Uh, First of all, I think we need to have a serious national debate. Do we need a federal law enforcement agency? I'm not, it's not clear to me that we do, right? State law enforcement agencies can do most of the legitimate functions of the FBI. If we conclude that we do need an FBI, then it has to be purged. I don't know any other way to put it. Uh, and the people who are responsible for so much of the nastiness of the last five or six years that have gotten off scot-free have got to be punished. And then the FBI needs to just be refocused on law enforcement only, specifically on those things that the states can't handle very well. The perjury trap operation that seems to have become its bread and butter in the last few years should be criminalized. So the agents who like get you to say, well, I have, you know, when did you go to Starbucks? It was nine. No, no, your receipt says 1045. You lied to the FBI, you're going to jail. Like th those guys should go to jail, the people who run those operations. And, and it, 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 for complex reasons of law that I won't get into, the FBI is the only agency in the national security bureaucracy that's uh, allowed to do counter-intel operations on U.S. soil. It does it very badly, and it tends to use those powers against Americans, so let's just get rid of it. No more counter-intel. Uh, abolish the DNI, the Directorate of National Intelligence, created after 9-11 to no purpose that I can see. It's 3,600 people, and its only purpose is to enforce groupthink what can be said and what cannot be said, what can be thought and what cannot be thought. Just get rid of it. Break up the CIA. The whole purpose of the CIA in 1947 was, the thought was, well, why did we have Pearl Harbor? We had Pearl Harbor because we knew, you know, this part of the government knew this piece and this part knew this, but nobody connected the dots. We put it all in one place. We'll have a place that connects the dots. That'll never happen again. Instead, we get, you know, 9-11 and a million other intelligence failures. Okay, so it doesn't work as advertised. Break it up. Its core functions should be sent to the to State Department, Department of Defense, Treasury. Its covert action capabilities, which have done no good for the United States ever, except embarrassing the hell out of us every you know, half a generation or so or, or more, just get rid of it. And, it. and it has its own little army, right? Paramilitary guys who aren't in any kind of DOD chain of command. Okay, some of them are extremely well-trained and, and good operators. Well, fine, keep them. Give them back. Give them to DOD. They don't need to be under the head of some spy master who's unaccountable to anyone. And, and, and finally, I would say we need to reform the ridiculous classification process. So if you've ever worked in one of these jobs, you come across constantly material. It's confidential, secrets, top secrets, top secret code word. It's this, that, and the other thing. Everything is classified, and you must, you, if you're on the outside, you probably think, wow, this is so fascinating. I wish I could read that. But if I gave it to you, it's like reading the phone book. It's not that interesting. And you go, you need to classify that. Like, you need to classify the recipe for, you know, a loaf of bread. You know, it's, you know there's a secret in there somewhere. Uh, it's my grandmother's. I can't tell you what it is. It's a power that they use in two ways. One is it's a way of controlling the people, right? So think about what's going on with Trump right now. Well, he had classified material at Mar-a-Lago. These were like the nation's deepest secrets. I have no idea what he had there, but I really doubt they were the nation's deepest secrets. And, but because he violated some rule, I once got in trouble for walking a document through the White House without the proper cover sheet. And that's how, like, I got in trouble means I sort of got yelled at. But if they want to make that a criminal case against you because you mishandled classified information, they can do it to, to anybody. It's like, it's like tax law. 
Everybody in this room is not in compliance with the IRS code in some way. You think you are, but if they want to get you on it, they'll find something that you did wrong and, and, and they'll get you on it. They do that with classified information. And of course, the classification process protects them from having their malfeasance, stupidity, et cetera, bad acts known. We gotta reform that and break it up. The last point is the biggest problem of all is the groupthink. And I don't really know how to solve that. Um, can you name the last time a captured institution was, was won back by the good guys, by its former enemies? I, I can't. So I, we do need, however, multiple perspectives. The people sitting around that big table in the White House Situation Room when they're talking about Ukraine, instead of having, you know, there's 13 seats around that table, um, instead of having all 13 people say, yep, yeah, Putin is evil, this is terrible, we gotta arm the Ukrainians, let's, you know, if it causes World War III, whatever, it's a righteous cause. We need at least one person at that table. I'm like, How about two? Dream big, six, saying, wait a minute, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And we don't have that. The only way to solve that problem, which is the deepest problem, is you just gotta elect people who are gonna shake up the system, but doing that is hard because the deep state has significant influence on whom you can elect. So, I, I wish I could end on a happier note, but uh, then again, I didn't lie to you. <laughs>